Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in sports cars. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. And who else is this brought to us by the Graham Goodwin, a face, a voice, a spirit <laughs> felt heavily within the force of galactic endurance racing. How are you this evening in the UK, my co-pilot of this crazy show we do together? Uh, it's great to be home, I'll be honest with you. Home after a month away uh, with the variety of ways in which we were dealing with not just the Asia Le Mans series, but then um, making the choice between being in a non-red-listed country for 10 days, which uh, was my choice, or uh, sitting in HMP Hounslow, which is the code name for hotel quarantine. And um, yeah, pleased to be back. Um, thoroughly positive trip and uh thanks by the way to all my motorsport mates uh that uh, shared the uh, bahrain experience as it was for us um and you know a very positive attitude kicking around there and delighted that everybody's home from the hotel quarantine as well and look forward to seeing all of you trackside um and let's hope we don't have to go through that farce again but uh, no back and boy oh boy mp the news agenda is not quitting again is it and uh, we're going to get straight into questions very quickly but the uh, just we were just having a chat before you press record, and it is indeed the David Bowie song ch- 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 changes this week, isn't it? You with, stole my line, Goodwin, you it, bastard! I'm right off the bat. <laughs> but um, but the but the uh, the the key uh, keynote thing this week has been all about, I think, two things: calendar changes and hypercar testing, and we'll get to both of those when we get into questions in just a moment. Well, why don't we crack open? With the Lamont date change, been hearing about that for a little while. Uh, did a little story about that on Racer.com a day or two before it was confirmed publicly. What are you hearing so far, Graham, from those within the uh, uh, WEC hemisphere? Realize that it's not just WEC that competes there. Obviously, you have the Michelin Lamont Cup. I mean, there's support series as well, but. What have you heard so far, response and reaction to this date well, change? So it's basically we've had three date changes in pretty rapid fire order, some leading on from others. Um, and it's been a bit of a it's a bit of a week of churn, let's put it that way. Uh, first up was the change for the Le Mans 24 hours. That will now take place on the 21st, 22nd of August. Um, and that, uh, I think, principally is because that's still during the school holidays, which means that there's a potential if we do get uh, crowds back. And that's the idea here is that there'd be an opportunity for more families to actually come. Uh, I think that's part of the reason behind it. That's led to a knock-on effect on the European Le Mans series, which was previously to have uh, a race the following week from uh, from that at Paul Ricard. That uh, meeting has been moved. And then the third change um, was for WEC, and that's quite an interesting one. That has gone to and fro, so there was certainly a big push for the Portimao season opener to be delayed. There's a number of reasons for that. The first of which is that for some nations, and that's a bit of a movable feast determined, uh, determined by active COVID cases uh, in other countries, that you would need to um, uh, to quarantine in uh, Portugal for 14 days before the race. That's going to be time-consuming and expensive. And then for UK travellers, 
you would need to, again to go into hotel quarantine coming back because Portugal is red listed principally because it is a waypoint for travelers coming from Brazil and with COVID variants and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, either way, after being pushed back initially uh, against a change, the uh, World Motorsport Council has now confirmed a revised calendar and that race will now not be the season opener. So the season will now open um, at Spa with a uh, with the prologue test just a couple of days before. So we just pushed back the season by just a few weeks. I can tell you, having spoken to just about all the British teams involved, uh, that is a sense of huge relief. There is one further knock-on effect, by the way, that may have had a part to play in that. Yeah. This is all about money when it comes down to it. It is, can the teams afford the huge bill that comes when you've got to put 20, 30 guys uh, into uh, and girls into hotels uh, at well uh, in dollar terms about 2250 US uh, for 10 days and the answer is well they've done it once they're not going to be in a hurry to do it again the further problem is by changing the date of the Le Mans 24 hours that means it's now too late for the cars to go from Le Mans to Fuji by sea. They're going to have to go by air. And that is another big five-figure bill that people had not budgeted for. So those two changes combined, I'd give you, a, for instance, that you know, for an average team, if you're into both those bills, it's probably about the cost, somewhere between half and the actual cost of running an LMP2 car for a race. Um, it's a big amount of money for these teams at a time when, let's be blunt, uh, after the year we've just had, we want to be avoiding that. So I, for one, am very pleased indeed that LMEM, the WEC organising uh, body, have uh, moved to change Portimao. I think that's been a massive relief, particularly for those teams though, whose personnel are you know, just home from the Asian Le Mans series after having spent a lot of money having some pretty dreadful food, in the case of some of them, um, in a hotel overlooking a Heathrow runway. Yikes. So we so have... We yeah, we have calendar changes there. We have reaction to those calendar changes by IMSA, which has taken its uh, Michelin... GT Challenge at VIR wiped that off the same date, which is now the new uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans date, pushed VIR to the date held by its season finale, Petit Le Mans. And Petit Le Mans has been pushed back something like 34 days, extending IMSA's season by over a month. So it is now November 13th. So, yes, I would say whether we're talking dominoes, or in this case, it feels like a bowling ball and pins. You have the pretty big strike with the Lamont date change. And yes, lots of other dates have fallen and modified accordingly. Well, let's well, get one thing there, MP. What, one thing to say is that's an encouraging sign, don't you think? It's not ideal, but it's an encouraging sign that IMSA and LMEM and ACO uh, have cooperated on this. There's clearly been a constructive discussion about what that might mean. It, it, for instance, would have meant, um, you know, obviously Portimao uh, was meant to be the first of what I expect to be two races for uh, a single Corvette C8R in the FIWC. 
with Oli Gavin and Antonio Garcia. Uh, by the way, something I completely missed me until I chatted to Mr. Gavin over a coffee. They've never shared a car uh, until Portimao this year. It just never impacted on me. That is a unique duo for the C8R that's in, in the career that both of them have had at Corvette Racing. They have never shared a car together, and that will come with the debut of the C8R um, in uh, in uh, this season's uh, WEC competition. Uh, so th- it's another of those reasons why this, what, what can we call it, this new era of cooperation, um, and all credit to both the IMSA and WC management for that, has found solutions that have meant that you know their valued customers can do the things they want to do and need to do. Well, amen to that. I... Don't know how hard I would go into the notion that there was uh, international collaboration on the date changes here, um, but knowing how important Lamont is to many IMSA participants, uh, I would say that that was always going to be a change. Uh, if Lamont moved, there was going to be a reaction by IMSA if there were any uh, clashes there, but. All right, we've mentioned David Bowie. We've just mentioned The Clash. Uh, Shall we start mentioning one of our four categories that we play with each week on the show, my man, of which you are the official Week in Sports Car selector. Let's have a crack. Uh, I know we did last week, but let's again go the way of Weck, Asms, Elms, and Aco, the ACO rules racing category. And what have we got this week, MP? Oh, plenty. Oh, we have plenty. <laughs> Nearly half of our seven, is it 74, 75 questions this week? Good God. Nearly half fall into your world. So let's get rolling here. Daniel Summersgill, our pal who never writes in and our writes in nonstop, uh, pounds yeah, a lot of energy drinks. Yes. <laughs> uh, curious about any insider news about this date change. Uh, he mentioned it appearing and then disappearing on auto ebdo and and whatnot also mentioned uh, the article mentioned that the Lamar classic was going to be canceled mm-hmm. anything you can tell us beyond what we know little any spicy bits not, not a lot i mean it's not a secret that the aco are keen um to make sure there's the maximum possible chance of the maximum possible number of people being able to attend it's going to be tricky for them uh, to run that event without spectators for a second consecutive year. I've also heard that we're likely to see the Le Mans Classic um, cancelled for this year. Uh, that, remember, is not an ACO-organised event. That's 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 um, uh, put together by Peter Auto, uh, Patrick Peter, the B from BPR. Sorry, the B, the P from BPR. Um, uh, back in the day. So uh, I think there's every chance that we will see a cancellation for the Le Mans Classic. Um, as for why things were disappearing, maybe it was just leaked a little bit early. Um, but I think the reality is this has been kicking around for a little wee while. It was just a point at which the they would pull the trigger on this one. It's been looking very rocky indeed for Le Mans to welcome spectators in June. Certainly the season opener at Spa has already been confirmed will be behind closed doors. That's really sad. But uh, my message to anybody listening here that is missing their, their yearly dose of sports car racing is just be patient. You know, we have got much, much, much better days to come. 
moving forward and you know just be patient with this it'll get better um it, i know it's very tough and i know it's very easy to say that if you know the guy saying it is attending some of those races but i'll be blunt the uh, the experience in the paddock is not the one that we would normally have we're not allowed to do a whole lot of things as well i would want when people come back them to have the full experience of attending that race whether it's imso WEC, elms whatever it's going to be so you know Bide your time, speak to your travel providers. They're ready, uh, willing and able to give you the best advice they can. And let's go back racing when we're all good and safe to do so. Uh, um, you know, we're not as not having to take quite as many measures as we currently are. It is not a lot of fun, um, you know, navigating the COVID protocols in a racing paddock at the moment. Um, you know, I think I was chatting MP to one team member in Abu Dhabi who calculated that by the time he is home and through his self-isolation he will have been away for two months and will have had 30 PCR tests Um, three zero PCR tests Uh, very regular in some places uh, absolutely essential in very many and hugely expensive by the way for both the teams and the the, uh, freelancers Uh, that are having to go through that process so stick with it fingers crossed we will see a number of you at uh, Le Mans this year and if that happens we'll bring some news of what we'll bring into into the um, into the into the bargain to play uh, as the weekend sports cars so we I, I think it's fair to say at the moment I think we can say now MP planning that when fans are back uh, that you will see some uh, twist live efforts uh, at many of the bigger races once fans are back and part of the equation now we get to mention eminem yes we'll be back back again <laughs> sorry uh damien peachman related question here to the change of date for le mans uh says what are the chances august september even the pushback date might not happen well, I think, look, there's a possibility that what they're doing is they're giving themselves as much wriggle room as they feel they possibly can. Um, I think we just have to keep our fingers crossed and, you know, just everybody just needs to be sensible about this uh, and just get through this really difficult time, uh, really difficult time globally. And, you know, I particularly feel for those travelers that this was going to be the year or last year was going to be the year and other couple of people um you know regular listeners and regular um you know uh, followers on social media of what we do paul market i know who's a regular um has been <laughs> biding his time for what was going to be a very special trip for him uh, i know there'll be a lot more of you too it'll get better and we've got some exciting cars coming we've got some exciting new eras coming bide the time it, it, it will get there is there a chance to be postponed again there's a chance there's, you know, the reality at the moment is the one thing we can predict is it's not predictable. Um, all we can do together is to try to make the chances as good as we possibly can that it will go forward. And the best way of doing that is everybody plays their part and everybody just is sensible and just try not to listen to the naysayers out there. It's very easy, you know, when things aren't great to, you know, grab hold of someone who's not got answers but just agrees with being annoyed about something 
just take the advice, look after your friends, look after your family, and look after yourself, and we'll see your trackside. That's as much as we can really say, I think, isn't it, MP? I would agree. Uh, I read a tweet from someone no, yesterday. You didn't. I did, who added me, who uh, included me in their tweet, saying that they doubt the Sonoma NASCAR race is going to happen. And I mentioned this on our sports car show just because I I find it odd, Graham and dear listeners, when some people feel the need to predict things that they have zero control over <laughs> and the prediction is utterly useless. Uh, the Sonoma NASCAR race happens mid-June. We are not even mid-March, so we are more than three months away from this event happening here in my home state. We have just had, in this home state, a major relaxation of COVID restrictions. There's still many tiers to go before the state is wide open, but we've just had the first major everyone exhale for the first time in a long time. We're going to allow, I think it's 20%. Uh, occupancy for Major League Baseball's opening day coming up here, etc. Um, but here we are three months out. We've seen vaccines, at least in this country, start to take off, right? We're apparently vaccinating about 2 million people a day. Realize that in other countries and states and principalities, that may be a different thing. But things are starting to move in a positive direction here. Just at another little note, uh, driving... Thursday uh, to my wife's long physical therapy session that we go to twice a week saw in almost immediate reaction to this first step of downgrading of restrictions all related to COVID Graham that businesses even the local McDonald's that we drove by or we drive by to get there has big banners that they've had made and put out you're welcome to come in for in-room dining however they try to convey it look you're not locked out anymore we're not wide open got to wear a mask got to do a lot of other things but hey first step and so i just found it funny that here in the first step of things actually relaxing where fans could be held someone decided they had to tell me and a few other reporters that they don't think this race more than three months away at this state will happen (laughs) and i'm going like how why everything pointing back to your point, everything pointing to Damien's question, of course there could be pauses, delays, who knows? At least if we look at how things are happening in some areas around the world right now, there's reason to have some optimism that things, instead of being canceled and pushed back as they've been for the last year, might actually become a little bit more feasible. Can't say if it's 100% crowd, 50%, 5%, but... Uh, I would say predicting doom and gloom. Uh, maybe we could take a quick step back from that right now. Yep, uh, I think that's exactly right. Uh, stick with the program, guys. It's, it, 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 we are closer to the end of it than we are to the beginning, is is my belief and my hope. And let's just wait and see where things go from there. So Your phone agrees to it. It's dinging away that's, in agreement. I love it. Uh, that was just a, a quick conversation with Trudy to say how long it's going to be till I'm uh, in for dinner. And it shouldn't be dinging because it's muted, but there you go. Hey, oh. All right. Uh, let's go to John Richter. 
Talking about mm. the logistics of a Lamont invite, says I respect the statement of GPX not accepting a 24-hour Lamont invite. How valuable is an invite? Uh, how valuable is that spot in the 24? And how common is it for teams to decline an auto invite, Graham? Could they have tried to sell the spot to another team? And also says, how many entries does United Auto Sports have? And do they use them all? And we've already discussed. Uh, can we can can we announce this now? Can we confirm break news on the show? There will be a United Auto Sports class at the 24 Hours of There will Lamar. be. There will yes. be 15 cars in it. Uh, right, so from the top. So GPX Trem, GPX, based in Dubai, owned by Frederick Fetier. Uh, and the golf-coloured Porsche is the car that you'll recognise as GPX car. Did indeed confirm they will not be taking up their automatic invitation. That was for coming second in the Asian Le Series GT programme. Lots of reasons behind it, or several reasons behind it. That One of the declared reasons is that they are in the process of changing their service provider to ART, big team. The last time we saw ART with a major team in AC Overalls Racing was the SMP Racing uh, LMP1 squad. So they've got intent. Uh, they're clearly uh, progressing with their GT3 program, but uh, they've got intent, and uh, several team members have made it clear to me that they have you know, Le Mans on their horizons. There's another reason as well, which is they want, I think, to be certain that when they're ready to go, they're going with the full Le Mans experience. So I think that's another reason why some people are a little loath to actually commit right now, while it's not really the full um, the full opportunity to experience Le Mans as we would all like and, you know, uh, and love it. Could, could they have sold it? They could have played that trick. It does tend to go down like a bucket of cold vomit with the um, uh, the ACO uh, when those tricks are played, and you can find that that bites you uh, in future years. So I think what they're doing is respecting the event, respecting the process, and they're to be applauded for that. How common is it for teams to decline? It's happened a number of times. We've seen it uh, with some teams from... Uh, the, uh, with Le Mans winning uh, squads, we've seen a couple of LMS teams do it. We've certainly seen one or two of the Asian Le Mans series teams doing it in recent years. So it does happen uh, that teams will decline those automatic invitations. How many entries does your, uh, your, uh, does uh, United have? Right, putting aside the fact they get one anyway for having a car in the WEC. Uh, they won Le Mans in LMP2. That's one. They won the WEC in LMP2. That's two. They won and finished second in the ELMS in uh, LMP2 with their two cars. That's four. They won in LMP3 in the LMS last year. That's five. And they won in LMP3 in the Asia Le Mans series. So six automatic entries are in the bag for United Autosports. I think... They will ask for two, um, and I think they'll be looking to run a three-car LMP2 squad for the 2021 Le Mans 24 Hours. That list, by the way, is out on the 9th of this month, so it will be out on the 9th of this month, uh, which, by my reckoning, as he quickly checks, is Tuesday, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yes. So Tuesday is when we'll get the 2021 Le Mans uh, list and I expect there to be 62 cars on that list plus uh, a number of reserve entries as well. So I don't think they're going to be short of entries. Um, so it, it, it's again a delight and a surprise to see the entry lists across Europe looking quite so healthy. And that, by the way, 
was followed up with a 31-car entry for the Michelin Le Mans Cup, uh, announced just a day or so ago, including, by the way, the first um, Gentoo Ades to be listed. Yes. Uh, and, and also, here's the great one, the first Icelandic LMP3 team, and brilliantly, it's Team Thor. <laughs> well, say yes to a death. All right, that that's the the Absolutely. main note right here. Uh, wow, well, that's great news. You know, I'll just mention this, and I don't know if I was going to do a story about it or not. It's an oddity that I think is going to be confirmed, and it's not whack, but hey, it's major uh, endurance racing entry list conversation. I believe the upcoming twelve hours of Sebring will be run without a Ferrari in the field, which will be the first time in kind of sort of forever. Uh, I haven't gone back and tried to look and see what year uh, we were lacking a Ferrari privateer factory, any any type of Ferrari entry. But yeah, as of right now, uh, I know that uh, you mentioned the number 62 for Le Mans, which is why my brain, which is an abstract thing, went straight to Risi Competizione, which is the traditional number they've run here uh, forever. Um, yeah, so Risi is not planning to attend, and I am unaware of Scuderia Corsa bringing anything in GTD. So anyways, little uh, little factoid there that, again, I think is going to be the case, but we'll keep it on that nonetheless. When that entry list comes out, let's go to James Counter. Talking about a little something we take pride in here. Not only does Graham Goodwin waste his time talking to me each week, he's like a real commentator and stuff. He he does good word talking and face talking. James says, Graham, was the Asian Le Mans series your first time being lead commentator? How did you find that role versus color commentator? Because I thought the broadcast was great. Two of you did an amazing job referring to the Oliver Gavin said Ollie had some great insights. Any news on Ollie doing more, possibly even Lamar? Well, thank you very much for that, James. Uh, Not the first time I've done uh, play-by-play or lead, depending on how you call it. I've done a couple of races in the European Le Mans series uh, in recent times with that. I've uh, done, uh, I think I've done at least one previous, two or three, in fact, previous races in the Asian Le Mans series. And actually for the last couple of years have uh, filled in and done stints at Le Mans on the uh, Le Mans TV, the international feed as a lead commentator. Um, Lessons learned. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it and particularly thoroughly enjoyed uh, both the company and the insight of Ollie Gavin, who was, I think, a bit of a revelation uh, 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 in the Asian Le Mans series. Grueling stuff it was. Four four four-hour races in, what was it, eight days. Um, but uh, a cracking team effort, I have to say, and a delight to spend time with Ollie. And by the way, I uh, hope to be bringing you a couple of Inside the Sports Car Paddock uh, contributions, Molly and others, in the coming days and weeks. Um, prospects for more? He's certainly interested. Uh, hashtag watch this space. Ooh, look at that. Personal commentator. Ollie's going to come to your house, and he's picking up the fork. Oh, and he's missed <laughs> the P Apex yet again. Let's go to our pal Kevin Payne. Says, what have you done to Rosie 
Rocky and Oscar. I think he might be referring to one of the new logos that we have, by the way, for the show, Graham. <laughs> I didn't tell you about that one. That was a little surprise. Um, a for those who haven't seen it, tell folks what, what I did slash we did. Uh, well, we've got uh, another of the new 2021 logos, um, which features not just your gorgeous face and my, I have to say, I think, statuesque model-like looks. Um, but by that, I mean like the Airfix model with all the glue and everything. But uh, but also your two cats and my big husky with his great silly face. Um, but uh, as for what he's been up to, well, um, I've been away for a month. He was very pleased to see me. Or he would have been had it not been that whilst I was making my way through Heathrow Airport, he wasn't at the vet's. Um, having something of an emergency, having eaten some poisonous berries. So it should be should be uh, said that whilst he was quite excited to see me, he couldn't actually make his front and back legs work in the same direction. Um, he, there was a degree of, how can we put this, sedative involved. And uh, he was basically just had to, he came up and made his kind of, uh, his greetings known and then had to go off for, a big sleep, but he's absolutely fine now. Um, I'm now in self-isolation, so I won't be taking him for a walk, I'm afraid, for the next couple of weeks. But uh, we've got a couple of plans once that's out of the way uh, to take him and have a bit, a bit of daddy-doggy time, shall we say. How about Rocky and Rosie? Uh, well, Rocky is currently s- sitting on top of the scanner, staring out the window. Rose is face down, drunk at the bar, asleep. She does this bizarre, like, it's not face plant. It's like entire head plant straight down. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Uh, so they're well. But, yeah, uh, we just know that whether it's talking about your dog, which has a Twitter account, DSC underscore dog, our cats, which don't, but maybe, who knows, I, we'll see if that ever changes. But our cats, your dog, they seem to be a weekly presence on the show, which is why we decided to include them in a show logo. So there you go. Uh, back to Kevin's entry here. He says, would appreciate hearing uh, what you both predict for the GT class in WEC, ACO, and Asian Le Mans series. Kevin wanting to know what we're thinking without a lot of direction here, though. Maybe he's referring to the future of GT racing. Let, let's take I it think- in that direction. Well, I think he is, um, and this is all to do with uh, whether or not GT3 will be form, forming part of it. The inevitability is it will have to, um, but it, the, the key thing is when. Um, so thinking about the pro side of things, do I expect there to be a GTD or GT3 Pro in WEC before 2023? No, I don't. Um I think they will let LMDH play out and see where things actually lie there. The arrival of Ferrari on the scene in LMH is certainly not helping that uh, that process. If uh, if people are looking for GT3 uh, Pro to be coming sooner rather than later, there's some interesting exchanges about this um, in conversations I was having in uh, in Bahrain with, amongst others, Tom Ferrier was with us uh, from TF Sport who run a variety of GT3 and GTE Aston Martins. Obviously, Ollie Gavin and the Corvette racing side of things have got skin in the game as well. And, you know, interesting opinions coming out of it that the GT3 thing will have to come, but it's a matter of when will it come. And opinions divided as to whether or not that might be 23, it might be 24. What is the kind of ideal and sustainable number of factories in LMDH? Um, And will there be a wish, a need 
uh, to encourage manufacturers that don't confirm that to come and have an opportunity to bring pro crude uh, GT3s. For me, I still can't see it much before 24 MP in ACO rules racing. Clearly, it's coming next year for um, uh, for IMSA, and there'll have to be a solution reached for, for instance, uh, Corvette Racing. I think we're pretty clear on what that solution might well be, but I don't see it coming as quickly uh, to the world of ACO, uh, ACO rules racing. They've got storylines they can um, rely on in hypercar with obviously the new class this year, Peugeot added next year, Ferrari coming the year after that together with the incoming LMDHs in 23 with the centenary of the, the great race to come as well. Um, and I think the, the other reality here is pro GT3 racing in ACO rules racing can be, if you like, switched on at not a lot of notice. Uh, I think they can afford to wait and see who are the takers in, you know, the brand new top class, converged top class, that they're placing a lot of their time, uh, regulatory and technical investment into before they feel they have to give those manufacturers or those customer racing departments the opportunity to find a different route into, you know, the biggest race in the world uh, in endurance sport, uh, the Le Mans 24 hours, which is clearly, I think, what is the main draw? I don't know if you see things happening more quickly, but for me, maybe 23, depending on how many um, factories and customer cars we see emerging in the prototype field, I'd have thought more likely 24. I think it's just purely a function Graham of necessity, as you mentioned, IMSA has hit that necessity sooner than uh, ACO, WEC, European Le Mans Series, Asian Le Mans Series based racing. We've just encountered this downturn faster. Therefore, the reaction was has been made sooner. So yep. most of the series that you cover are not at that place yet but we can see the possibility of that happening. So yeah, yeah, going to happen just, yeah. What is that crucial uh, kind of we've hit the point of no return where if we don't do it now, we're going to look silly and decimated uh, in our GT ranks point. So yeah, uh, not here on your side, but uh, definitely it's coming. Let's go to a question from John Schultz visit with this one for just a moment because it's an interesting one he says i recently read an article about young thomas laurent in which he was surprisingly open about his separation from toyota unfulfilled hopes of driving for alpine or peugeot and his presently bleak future prospects he says what is your view on this matter in my opinion it would be heartbreaking to see the career of one of the most promising young drivers just end like this i know graham i can add briefly up front that uh, someone part of uh, Tomas's management team had asked if there was any interest in doing a feature story here about him just to try and stoke interest, potential interest, see if an IMSA team might want to hire him. And I know that I pointed uh, that person back to you out of no disrespect. I've already done it. Yeah, no, I've out, already done it. Out of no disrespect. Yeah, and this was a month ago or more. And out of no disrespect to Thomas, uh, to Ma, but just the point being in what I replied to uh, his person was he has no profile here. And there are already enough champion, true, like 
IMSA champions without drives right now that while this story could be written, it's going to get you nowhere because he has no profile. So it's better to stick with the region where he does have some sort of name built up. But this isn't, it's not the first, it's not the last time such a thing will be written, right, Graham? The young talent who hits a wall for reasons that are rarely linear, right? It's rarely one thing that takes him out of the game. Why do you think Tomas is in the place that he's in, and do you think he can recover? Um, I hope so. He's a fine young fella, um, but we're in a weird time right now. Um, Why do I say that? So first and foremost, those who don't know, uh, the back uh, background or the backstory to Thomas Laurent uh, came in through, oddly enough, through the Asian Le Mans series, through LMP3, through to LMP2, winning races and titles, and then into LMP1, where he's won WC races with Rebellion Racing. Um, was appointed as test and development driver for the Toyota Hybrid program. Uh, depending on which side of the coin you decide to take, either walked away from that or his time was up with that. Uh, Nick DeVries now on board with that program um, and has struggled to find another berth for 2021. In part, in pretty serious part, that is going to be not just to do with his talent level, but also um, with his ability to bring budget to those efforts and this is the key point right now lmp2 uh, is in high demand right this second and it's going to stay that way for the next couple of years because of the other thing we've been talking about which is this new converged uh, top class all of a sudden drivers that would never have bothered to look at lmp2 are now looking at it for the very first time as a for instance um talent coming out of single seaters looking towards sports cars as a sustainable route through to high profile career gt drivers we talked about this on the weekend sports cars for a number of weeks uh, are looking for the opportunity to get into an lmp2 seat we've seen numbers of those we're going to see more of that coming that is going to lead to a number of things it gives us lots of great headlines we can see some proper talent coming through But it also means, because there's not a massive increase in the number of cars coming to uh, the grids, there are going to be some casualties in terms of drivers are going to find there is not the space available for them that perhaps they thought there would be. And I think, sadly, for a variety of reasons, Toma is one of those guys that is just finding that his traditional avenues to a drive are closing before his very eyes. There's another driver I had a brief conversation with whilst in the Gulf region. He's in a similar position. I know that driver has found a uh, drive for 2021. I'm delighted to uh, hear that that's the case. But another driver that found exactly the same kind of problems, which is effectively their go-to teams were just full. Uh, was talking to a team owner that said the demand at the moment in LMP2 was such that they came very close to putting a third car into full-time competition in the WEC. That being Jota Sport opted eventually not to do so. Uh, but you know, you've got teams moving up, the likes of TF Sports, who will be in the uh, European Le Mans series as Racing Team Turkey with Sally Yorich, um and helped by Jota Sports in that campaign. You've got Edex Sport doubling up. You've got Era Motorsport all over the place with, you know, full season efforts. It is a crowded marketplace, and I'm afraid right now, Thomas Laurent looks like he might be a casualty in the in the 
absolutely storming run for people to get you know talent and paying talent is the other point here into those seats all fair points yeah the (laughs) if there's one future-based hope it's that with the three lmdh manufacturers that have been confirmed so far the what four uh hypercar if i have my number correct well let's i don't know if we add in uh by callus to that but we know that there are going to be more lmdh manufacturers confirmed before we get to the launch of that formula 2023 i think we've said before in the show six is the minimum number i think we're going to be at the hope is that while right now we have a downturn in factory gt programs uh, there aren't an exceptional amount of factory LMP1 grade slash LMH slash DPI opportunities. I'm hoping and thinking uh, someone like Thomas could, in the next year, two, or three, find himself uh, in a stronger position as more factory efforts get ramped up and get rolling. So hope I'm is sorry. there. Uh, but even then no, again, no disrespect. I don't know where he would sit in a queue for some of the manufacturers coming in. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe he needs to run around naked or do something to get noticed, but, (laughs) um, yeah, there's something there. Let's move Graham because I know we got to still have a ton of questions and, uh, yeah, well, we want to get to as many as we can. Let's go to this, uh, new submitter, Daniel Mm -hmm. Summersdill, uh, says, do you think if the Glickenhaus 007 hypercar can be competitive with the Toyota Groot, a.k.a. the GR010, at a fraction of the budget, uh, it could cause Audi and Porsche to rethink not building an LMH, given that Ferrari have entered the fray, and they could want to build their own chassis to beat Ferrari? I don't think that is on the cards, principally because of the basis on which the programs have been approved. So the reality is they're going to have to balance these cars, and that might mean some pretty swinging you know, changes to a base specification to get to the point where a two-wheel drive car with a mild hybrid system can compete uh, head-to-head with you know what are remarkably advanced powertrains in the LMH cars. As for Jim Glickenhaus' car, great to see that car has been out and testing for the rollout and then two days now at, uh, at Monza um, and beginning to get some insight into what's going in the background. I would not be remotely surprised to see uh, some pretty substantial uh, changes in terms of the balance uh, that's going to need to be applied to these cars. Uh, I'd be honest with you, uh, the the level, the advanced level of the powertrains for the Tota and the Peugeot was a surprise to me in terms of the capabilities of those cars. Um, I wouldn't be remote. We've already seen a mild adjustment, uh, weight adjustment, plus 10 kilos for the Tota. The, I think there are two aspects here that are going to be of interest for the future. One is... What is the power that those cars are going to be running? Uh, will that be an adjustment there? My guess is there might have to be. And the second thing is tire wear. That is a major uh, part of the uh, the uh, the puzzle here. And 
the reality, I think, is going to be that a four-wheel drive car, in an era where we've had four-wheel drive cars and, and, and Michelin being very experienced with uh, providing tyres for those, could have a very substantial uh, advantage on tyre wear over a car putting its not inconsiderable power through just the two rear tyres. Uh, that was a factor throughout the latter part of the uh, LMP1 era with the uh, the newer cars only really getting tyres that were built around a two-wheel drive uh, powertrain uh, in the very last season of the WEC. Uh, that wasn't something they had previously. They were effectively using tyres that were designed for um, four-wheel drive uh, you know, powertrains. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting moment or three. The change in the calendar MP is going to be interesting as well because I think we will we'll certainly see the Glickenhaus at the first race of the year now, uh, which will be Spa. Uh, and there will be two cars, by the way, for that race. Um I think the change of the Portimao date will mean that we'll see uh, Jim Glickenhaus' team there too. So um, I think we'll have plenty of time to assess performance before the cars get to the Le Mans 24 hours, um, including, by the way, that, uh, that um, uh, grandfathered LMP1 car, the Alpine. Yeah. Uh, we don't. We presume there's going to be one for Le Mans. Might there be a second? There could be. Uh, there could be a second for the Le Mans 24 Hours, and it's a big moment for the technical teams at both the ACO and IMSA to see what they can do to get those three very different base cars to a performance level that means we're going to get a show. Look at that. Uh, let's see. We're going to move into a bunch of other Weck Aslam Elms Echo questiones. Uh, Jacob Bame, we need to take at least one of his questions. I cannot <laughs> afford to pay for his carpal tunnel uh, surgery and medication if he has to keep sending it. Well, he doesn't have to. He could stop. But he sent in a third attempt for one that's about all kinds of hypothetical things that by the time I would finish reading it to you, we would both be having seizures uh, there's a second one with a super long thing here that includes the phrase trofeo filippo caracciolo so congratulations for assembling that for us jacob i'm actually going to take the driving standards during the first two races the asian Le Mans series were unbecoming to say the least says i also took notice of two black flags handed out in uh free practice to yas marina for track limit violations are there any plans in race control to enforce track limits during race weekends better than, say, they did in Dubai? This is hashtag me personally. It's got to the point where supposedly professional drivers can't keep their cars on track. Currently, driving standards are ridiculous, Graham. And if a driver can't fit on the black stuff, they shouldn't be there. I think, I think there's two things to say about Dubai. One is it was remarkably slippery, quite sandy uh, at Dubai, remarkably slippery. Uh, there so that's one thing the second thing is remember we had an awful lot of teams that were not um, prior entrants to any aco series and therefore would not have been exposed to the standards are imposed by eduardo freitas and his team you know, you know the different series have different rules eduardo is very very clear in all of his driver briefings about track limits and the reality is 
that he was going to put down what he always does is put down the marker. I've told you, I've told you more than once. And now, you know, we're going to get to the stage where we're going to have to prove to you that we not only can enforce this, but we will enforce this. This is not unusual at, um, you know, the ACO rules racings that, uh, races that I, uh, I actually cover. Um, you know, in free practice sessions, he will lay down the marker and he'll lay it down pretty hard and has had a variety of uh, measures put in place in previous races uh, to just to show the team that he means business, including a couple of times telling uh, drivers that they must come into the pits during a free practice session. I can remember one race at the Red Bull Ring, for instance, where in free practice sessions, uh, car uh, teams were told to park the car outside the paddock, sorry, the pit lane access door for race control, that the driver should get out of the car and come up to race control and await his telling off, uh, which basically <laughs> they were actually, of course, not only were they losing time, it also meant that the car was not able to be taken out by anybody else in that session until such time as Eduardo had felt his, he'd had the, uh, the time to actually get round to telling off, uh, insert name of uh, usually professional driver uh, that was basically being told the way his life was going to be. Um, the rules are clear. I think it's what it comes down to. Uh, I wasn't, didn't really think it was that bad at Dubai. Uh, other than the fact it was very clear that drip, uh, grip off the racing line was a, an absolute premium. Uh, it was certainly, I think, better at Yas Marina. The grip levels were better as well. And people were beginning to learn um, the way things were. We did have in the final race, probably predictably, a little bit more contact, including one pretty nasty accident involving two of the Porsches, two Porsches, sorry, two of the uh, Ferraris. And uh, happy to say that uh, no serious injuries as a result of that. But um, it, I don't think it was that bad. Uh, you, you know, we, we're dealing principally here with a number of teams with quite inexperienced drivers in mid-class racing. A lot of the uh, GT3 teams were doing this for the very first time. And you're going to find there uh, that, you know, some of the maneuvers that would normally be pulled often would be fine in an all GT3 race. When you've got cars of a variety of cornering and braking abilities, uh, could quickly catch out in an experienced driver. And I think some of the driving standards issues were, you know, as a result of that, quite aside from the fact uh, that the same applies, by the way, to some of the LMP3 and LMP2 talent that were finding their way in those cars for the very first time. Uh, one of the reasons why I know Ollie Gavin was very impressed indeed with young Franco Colapinto. Not only was he quick, properly quick, he didn't hit anything either. Uh, which, you know, you've got to say is pretty impressive in the company he was keeping. So that, I, I take the point, Jacob, uh, but the re reality is that I don't think driving standards were quite as bad as probably they might have appeared. Um, there were a lot of single car incidents, I think it's fair to say, um, uh, and those tended to get a little less as time went on if we got to the point where as happened at uh, Abu Dhabi, we got to the point where Ferraris weren't hitting each other. I think at one point we had is it five of the seven Ferraris were off the track with incidents only involving another Ferrari. Um, and that part of it was I, 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 certainly a bit of an eye-opener. 
where should we go next as rocky just said hello by the way uh raythemo no raythemo racer i have no idea how to pronounce this made up first name what role will nick devries have at toyota graham is he just a test driver will he race the new hypercar maybe being allowed to race an lmp2 car what's up with our Uh, man nick well, Nick, is obviously, he's got all sorts of business. He's also got a role at Mercedes F1. He has been part of the test team for the new Toyota hypercar. I am not aware at the moment there is an active plan for him to race the new car, but those things can change. He is clearly a young man with, I think, a very bright future indeed. Uh, I've not heard at the moment that we're going to see any changes for any, any individual races for the Toyota Gazoo racing team. But we are still in extraordinary times. We've still got calendars that have already been shown to be, you know, in some flux. Um, I think there are still surprises to come this year in terms of changes that may still need to be made. And whilst we've got what looks like a pretty firm, you know, rooted plan at the moment for, uh, the factory cars things can change um you know look at what's going on with corvette racing for instance with you know the races that we expect to see the catr in the wec um who knows might we see those cars in for more races if the cars in europe the third car is in europe might they put that car in for a third race they might that might have a knock-on effect in terms of what drivers might do uh might we see some changes you know with uh Races changed around and travel restrictions in place that will make it difficult or impossible for drivers to maintain their current, you know, dual program year. It might. Uh, is it out of the question that we might see Nick DeVries aboard a Toyota hypercar at some point this year? It absolutely isn't. Uh, is there an active plan that he should do so? Not that I'm aware of at the moment. Where are we going next? What? Da-da. Uh, here's a fun one. This is kind of an old uh, old chestnut we uh, dive into every now and then. Been watching the documentary on Amazon Prime that covers a 2015 edition of Le Mans, says Cody Oakwood. Mm-hmm. So, the Nissan GTR, GTLM, GTL Nismo MR, GTMLN. <laughs> what the hell? Looks like a ton of effort and money was put into the car. For it to be a one-and-done program, why the epic fail? What is your take on the whole program from start to finish? And what became of the cars, Graham Goodwin? And I usually do the talking about this, so I'm so glad it was asked of you. (laughs) So uh, there's at least one, at least one original car still in existence in Nissan's collection, I believe. Uh, What went wrong? Uh, I think it was a radical concept, a very radical concept and had some validity talk to some of the uh, engineers about the validity of that program and it, it's it's such a shame you know we lost ricardo de Villa at the time we did uh, ricardo uh, just an amazing uh, engineering genius uh, but ricardo was in the process of writing uh, effectively the kind of engineering history of these cars uh, for race car engineering magazine and didn't quite get to finish that series before uh, we lost him and he passed away uh, but he was in the inside uh, and was very much one of the the inside men and giving opinion and guidance uh, on this one radical concept designed principally around the Le Mans 24 hours uh, there were 
I think it's fair to say, MP, some shortcomings in the way the project was managed through 2015 and then beyond that. Uh, the major issue was that they trusted for way too long the promises of the hybrids uh, system supplier. Toratrack. Uh, indeed. And that that thing just didn't produce um, the either the power nor principally the reliability that gave the uh, program the opportunity to show what it could do. We never saw the car with its true designed capabilities in place. I can only give you the snapshot um, of potential described to me by one, none other than Harry Tinknell, uh, when the car was in its initial testing phase, uh, who described the capability of the um, hybrid system, certainly under braking. So remember the two things that the hybrid system does, it's, uh, it's braking efficiency and then the power deployment. Braking efficiency, Harry uh, uh, reported to me as being, and I quote, 100% more effective than the Audi R18 that he had tested. He tested that for a magazine feature, and that was the e-tron quattro. Uh, he tested that car, and he described when the, um, the hybrid system was, was working, uh, that it was amazing. Uh, he also said that it didn't work uh, to such an extent and um, because it was so effective that when it failed which it did apparently often you were going so quickly into those corners that you were off uh, so terrifying stuff at that point and of course those that followed the project closely will know the car was then not able to race at Le Mans with the hybrid system activated which meant two things radically down on power and the brakes were just uh, well trashed uh, very early on um the, the overheating unable to keep up any kind of pace pretty disastrous and you know what's a fascinating program to see it emerging kind of spluttered away and then the proposed changes for 2016 simply weren't accepted by the higher-ups in nissan and i'm afraid the project died an early death um but as a concept, as you know, for those of us that like to see a kind of pretty open rule book and something bonkers coming out of it, uh, I seem to recall MP saying at the time on this that the really sad thing about this is what that program did was it effectively put the nail in the coffin of a major manufacturer throwing the dice and doing something radical. Completely. The sorrow that I think you and I continue to carry with for this or with this is potential. The concept, as designed by Ben Bowlby, was sound, was 100% sound. There's no doubt that this would have worked. The failure, Cody, this was a managerial and strategery failure uh, of a grand scale. So that's why this was a what the hell, as you mentioned, while uh, getting a peek in on that documentary. So, yeah, that's the part that I hate. Ben's other wacky design, the Delta Wing, it came close to reaching serious uh, competitiveness 
with a lot of development time and breaking from some of Ben's uh, design concepts, right? As more downforce was added on, more power was added in, the car certainly became capable uh, in IMSA uh, in the, what, the latter stages of the America Le Mans series with Don Panos spending freely. But this Nissan P1 front engine thing, I was just looking through all my photos of it and pulling a lot of them. And it just, again, it struck me as, damn, <sighs> this could have been the opposite of what you mentioned, Graham, the opposite of leading manufacturers to say, nope, <laughs> you keep your little wacky ideas and drawings to yourselves. There is no chance in hell we're going to go down that road. We need something that is safe in going to have a almost guaranteed level of success. This thing could have had folks go the opposite way and really say, yeah, what? Well, let's try what other crazy stuff could we do? Um, what insane ideas have we not explored and how could we go out and be different we lost a lot of that with this failure and again uh, i think what ben drew what ben conceived could have absolutely shaken the other manufacturers with its potential with its had its potential been realized this was a managerial failure from the top uh, among all senior levels of management with this project. Um, in the hands, uh, with Ben, designers of the, Ben, his fellow designers of the car, with it, this in the hands of a different constructor, different manufacturer possibly. Again, I'm, I don't know if it needs to change brands from Toyota, or I'm sorry, from uh, Nissan, but if this were in the hands of a different group. Uh, if this was our friends in Cologne at Toyota, for example, uh, pulling this off or run through some others where we go, oh yeah, that's a rock solid institution from uh, management on down. I think we're having a very different conversation. I think that's fair enough. That's, um, it's one that will be in the history books as of could have been, isn't it? So we're a little bit past the hour mark, Graham. Why don't you take a look through the 34 uh, <laughs> Weck Azamelms ACO questions. Pick a few more you want to get to because we're going to lean heavily on this category for the bulk of the show this week. Uh, and then we'll move on to wherever you say we move. Uh, let's have a quick look. Uh, Joe Nowotny says, with Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus missing Porty Mail to complete homologation and be surprised, not shocked. Are they destined to frustrate like Ginetta and LMP1 with so much promise and ability to constantly deliver a program to the racetrack? Uh, just to explain, Joe and everybody else, the reason uh, Jim Glickenhaus gave when I spoke to him about what uh, what would have been missing Porty Mail but now won't be, I don't believe, is that uh, it was to do with the delay in their program, all sorts of logistical issues that have prevented personnel being at track, for instance, as a, for instance, for the first rollout, uh, X-Track and uh, Bosch not able to attend in person because of the variety of travel restrictions that are in place, but uh, were able to join remotely. That meant that their 30-hour test would have come after the Portimao race. It doesn't now. Uh, so therefore, uh, we should see uh, the Glickenhaus at the European races 
we expect with the two cars, second car and the process of build up. The reason why that 30 hour test was so important, if they'd have raced without doing a 30 hour test and something would have emerged at Portimao on the original date, the car by then is locked in and homologated and it's a multi-year homologation. So Jim's logic is correct. Why would you do that if you had the opportunity with the following week to run a 30-hour test in Spain, find out the issues that actually emerged in that 30-hour test, uh, make the minor changes that are going to be required. That's what they're doing in part at uh, Monza at the moment. Um, they're going to do that first, lock in the homologation, then go racing. Uh, so amongst the things at the moment that, are ha that have been happening at Monza, it's things like fine-tuning the programming of the gear shift, um, fine-tuning uh, the traction control aspects as well. Um, so all of those things need just track time, and you're going to find more out when you get into the longer distance testing, the 30-hour testing, when things like heat and wearing out the consumables of tires and brakes, etc., that's going to show them things that otherwise wouldn't be seen in the kind of relatively short runs you'll have with a one- or two-day test. So uh, whatever, it is disappointing uh, that things have been delayed, but the, the you can't fault the logic of the team when you're then coming into having to lock down homologation. Uh, what else? Uh, here we go. Philip Clark. How significant, if any, is an advantage to getting an auto invite from Angel Lamont if coming from a Porsche versus, for instance, a McLaren or a Mercedes GT3? Um, Philip says he's assuming Porsche GT3 team would step up to a Porsche GTE. McLaren team would have to pick up a whole new brand. Would the fact the Porsche team have run already with a car from the same brand give them a significant advantage? Not necessarily. Porsche GT3 car, completely different. Totally and utterly different from a 911 RSR. That being the case, I would expect the high likelihood is that Precut Herbeth, who are the team that won the Asian Le Mans series, are likely to move into a 911 RSR. Inception Racing, the Optimum Racing team, McLaren, I expect to see them running a Ferrari, and I know they've been in contact with a couple of potential service providers for that program. So reality is there's not a huge advantage to be gained by that, other than might be a little bit of um, you know, uh, knowledge and contacts in the, in the family that might help them to get those deals together more quickly, Philip. And let's give one more before we move on. Just have a quick look here. What have we got? Uh, gosh, Jacob, you do like a long question. Give yourself uh, an opportunity to get more chances given these things through. In a, in a week where we get 20, which we never, ever do, long questions are very easy to uh, squeeze in. But in a week where we've got you know 70 and 80 questions, long questions are going to be pretty darn difficult to kind of justify here. Let's have a look here. Uh, Andy Thomas. Uh, now that Ferrari have officially thrown their hat in the ring, do you think there's any chance at all that Aston will ever bring the Valkyrie to play at Le Mans? suspect they've spent all the cash in F1 now. Maybe the Ferrari will have a V12 or at least cross fingers. Uh, no, I think the Valkyrie is gone uh, from the prospects of seeing that one in Le Mans hypercar. Might we see something else emerge with an Aston Martin badge? I hope we do. I hope that that's one of the prospects that Ferrari coming into LMH might attract the attention of somebody with you know money to play with 
and the prospect of bringing the Aston Martin badge back into the top class of racing might see the prospects of that. But I think you're right. Right now, uh, Lauren Stroll and the Aston Martin uh, group are pretty much entirely focused on their F1 efforts. But let's hope we can see something coming, something coming back from Aston Martin in the relatively near future. Shall we move on and do a little bit of uh, IMSA type stuff? It's your call entirely. I am a slave. We're, well, uh, I was going to invoke that. Britney Spears. Slave to you. It's the all musical reference episode oh, of the week oh. in sports cars. Uh, you... He's been driving around the office to Britney, so we know this one. We're going to go with him, sir, and we're going to go with Dustin Marlowe. And uh, Dustin says, it's great news. The 48, is it Ally Bank? Is that right? Is it Ally or Ali? Sure. Uh, I don't know. I haven't used either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cadillac will be back at more events this year with this announcement that the uh, second Action Express run car, this is the Jimmy Johnson uh, car, will be doing the uh, endurance events for 2021. The announcement indicated Jimmy Johnson is dedicated to observing the tech and engineering details of running the car. Does it sound to anyone like he's gearing up for a future in team ownership? I'm sure you've been on the phone to Jimmy. I'm sure he tells you everything. What say you, Marshall Pruitt? He absolutely is not because he's too smart. Uh, I am totally unaware of Jimmy's desire to become a team owner. I would say that he is someone who is trying to fill vast voids of road racing knowledge and so the perfect situation for him in this year where he will be competing in 14 of the 17 ndt indycar series races everything but the ovals jimmy is trying to take a bit of a shortcut as much as he can or to shorten i should say uh the gap that he has in just modern racing technology mild disrespect to nascar i was gonna say no disrespect but it's mild he's been in a form of racing where technology by and large throughout his tenure nascar was treated as the enemy so now in a very short span of time dustin mr johnson is having to understand how not just dampers work but third springs those are things you don't have in nascar how does the car's damping work and how does this interrelated uh, third damper work? What does it do? Why is it there? Oh, okay. So it actually helps with the aerodynamic platform of the car without making the ride too crazy and yada, yada, yada. What are all the electronics in the car that I can learn from and maybe have that help me in IndyCar a little bit? There aren't. There's more technology allowed from an electronic standpoint, Graham, in a uh, DPI than there is in an IndyCar. That's by choice by IndyCar. But I would say, Dustin, look at this right now as more of, hey, I want to keep super busy, and there isn't an opportunity in IndyCar to do unlimited test days. So if I can incorporate more road racing, road racing technology uh, education by doing the Enduros, in IMSA, well, that's only going to expedite my learning curve overall. So I would put things more in that category than anywhere else. I'm not saying Jimmy would not have a stake in a car, maybe even one that he drives in the future. But in terms of I have just 
bought or built a 100,000-square-foot shop, Jimmy Johnson Motorsports. I'm going to be going in every day and running the team and then maybe also driving as well. Based on the vibe that I've been getting from him for a little while, and I think others have as well, he's wanting to do cool things in motor racing, high-fulfillment items, but he's just been on the road for 20 years straight, basically, and wants to... Uh, even doing the four IMSA Enduros plus the 14 IndyCar races, that's something like half of what he would do in a normal NASCAR year. So I think family, being a dad, being a husband, and just having greater life balance, I'd say that's the thing that has been evident, Dustin, and what he's been doing so far this year and would be the thing that would likely keep him out of showing up each morning at Jimmy Johnson Motorsports at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. Um, just haven't gotten that feel right now. Uh, I think that's a fair point. Um, also, you got Ricky Zagata says uh, on the same uh, front, with the 48 Cadillac committed now to the rest of the insurance rounds, how would you, Marshall Pruitt, judge Rick's, Rick Hendrick's commitment now and moving forward? I love it, Ricky. This is a thing that, of the many new developments this season in IMSA, this is the one that I'm loving, not the most, but it's fairly high on the list. Having seen and enjoyed Rick's last uh, participation in IMSA, this being in the mid-1980s in GTP, I love seeing Rick coming back. Back then, it was with his own effort. Uh, it was 100% his. Now, they're obviously partnering with Action Express ra- Racing, running that number 48 uh, Alley Ally Cadillac uh, on Rick's behalf. But I hope at some point to catch up with Rick to pose questions along this line, Ricky, of, hey, uh, could we see more? Could you want to do more? Could you ever see expanding something internally? Uh, Tell me about this because I love it and it tickles some, what, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, a long time ago, cool stuff from GTP's heyday. Um, let's move on. And this one from Ryan Comerford, Marshall. Regarding the interview you did with Mark Rushbrook of Ford a while ago, came during a heavy news week at Daytona. Feels like there was some interesting stuff that was never really passed out. A Mustang GT3? Any real chance at that happening? It felt like a watch this space sort of write-up. What did you personally take away from it, MP? personally all right you, and you inserted that so don't hang that one on ryan you inserted personal <laughs> oh man you're the worst no pressure. Here. no pressure i would say ryan that yes short of saying the words we're building mustang gt3s everything mark said supports that notion and he made no effort to hide the desire for that to be real and my question, just not talking about the story that I wrote, but the conversation he and I had that uh, turned into a story during that call, I think I asked about the Mustang GT3 thing as a little bit of a throwaway. It was more about GT4 and how we just don't have that many Mustang GT4s competing this season in the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. And he took and ran with that. So it wasn't me having some top secret thing that i knew wanted to see if i could tease it out of him he just you know ran with it which was great so 
I would be shocked if we do not have a Mustang GT3 uh, available for purchase here. I couldn't tell you when, but I would say sometime soon because not only was that the tone in his voice and the, the general framing of, of how he discussed it, Ryan, but also I have a pretty strong understanding that there's a goal here to make this car not just a domestic uh, item for sale, but this could be a really cool international platform for Ford to have and offer. He mentioned that this obviously would be a good thing that could be used internationally, but uh, I've also heard subsequently that, yeah, uh, they really would like to not only build and sell Mustang GT3s, but, hey, if you are in some far region of the world where GT3 cars race, they would like to absolutely make sure you can get your hands on one of them. Uh, don't have any idea on timing, price, etc. but I was really, really happy to hear how enthusiastic Mark was about getting into that space. That's good stuff, isn't it? And uh, with GTD Pro coming along, uh, that uh, brings with it some mouth-watering possibilities, doesn't it? Uh, Robert Pielli Jr., also... Why is it time to imp- why isn't it time to implement slow zones uh, as uh, WC does for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship? In fact, time and a caution to gather up the field, open the pits for each wave of cars, then do the pass around. He says is quotes obnoxious. Why not uh, close the pits except if the incident is up pit road and make the teams plan accordingly? Not against a pass around in theory, just can't stand watching extended yellows, especially for what seems like minor damage. I'll meet you halfway in this, Robert. I do love the idea of implementing WEC-like slow zones, F1-like slow zones, uh, Aussie supercar-like slow zones. I love that concept for minor things. But one of the things that we do here in IMSA, which is different uh, than in the WC, for example, Le Mans, I should say, is really the, the prime example What's the thing that I hate about Le Mans each year? It's whichever team, whichever entries early in the race have some sort of problem, a blown tire, just past start finish. They have to complete a painfully slow lap to get back, lose one or two laps. And because of the treatment of cautions, darn near no chance are going to get their uh, laps back. They're more or less out of the race early. They're in it, but any real chance of of success uh, has been lost. With what I like, although it does often come with, as you mentioned, this somewhat prolonged and occasionally obnoxious, come on, man, can we just get back to the race during yellows, is pits are left open, run in, do whatever you need to do, get back out, and we almost have a brand new race, especially in the long ones, Graham, right? The 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring. It's, I don't know if it's artificial or not. I mean, there are choices. Leave the pits open, uh, make them close, do slow zones, etc. But I do enjoy, from a pure entertainment standpoint, that, hey, all right, boy, this car is running off and they've hid. Maybe they're going to do that again after this yellow and after a restart, and maybe that advantage they still have is going to maintain. So I realize that leaders uh, lose the big gaps they can build, but 
but I do love just from an entertainment standpoint, especially during IMSA's longer races where it's kind of a, all right, gather them all up and let's go again. And you get, instead of it being one race, it feels like, to hashtag me personally, you have four, five, six, seven, ten, twelve races, however many uh, cautions that require this process that can be a bit elongated. So I do like the idea of integrating slow zones for things where you go, yeah, there's no real reason to stop the entire field for this. Uh, but yeah, I'd say I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, let's define situations where you go, no, we're not going to intervene and uh, let everybody pit, organize everything, and then start all over again. Um, but I wouldn't want to lose it altogether because I do think it's uh, unique to IMSA, and I enjoy it. So it's very uh, just selfish is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's well for John Day. John says, with the news out about GTD Pro in IMSA, there have been occasions when unrestricted or on BOP GT3 cars have made appearances. He cites two, the Audi 8 uh, R8 LMS driven by Chris Meese. That was the Bathurst time attack for the lap record. And Ross Gunn at Le Mans in the then brand new Vantage GT3 in the Aston Martin support race. Both cars not running with BOP measures in place. Uh, both the cars demonstrated quicker pace, still under control. Remember correctly, the same, if not quicker, than a GTE car. What say you on this being considered when the technical regs for GTD Pro are being put together? Hashtag me personally. Thinks there's untapped potential within GT3. They should be run nearer the road car, the road going output the cars. Be up to the driver to extract all the potential out of the cars. Love the thought process behind this, John. And I don't know if we've had, um, I don't know if we've had questions from you before. If so, apologize for forgetting. And if not, thanks for writing in. Love the, the spirit behind this, John. I would say the only thing that might temper it is costs. Costs are the reason that we are losing GTLM. It's a reason that we have manufacturers pulling out this GTD Pro is something that is meant to be the, all right, we give you a place to play as a factory or privateer if you want, but factories come and play in pro, and we're going to try and do this at a budget point that keeps you here and makes you happy. Start peeling off some of the restrictions, and you just start spending more money. So I don't disagree with you. I would love to see unrestricted GT3 cars and Boy, I bet they would be an absolute blast. But as you start to add speed, you start to consume more things, uh, whether it's brakes, whether it's tires, uh, engine life goes down, gearbox life goes down, the budget numbers just start to increase. So this would have to be a point of sale to manufacturers that would want to get in and participate either as factories or supporting privateers. I would just say in the existing climate, John, I think that would be a failure. I think trying to sell that right now would be a failure. Do I think that we would be blessed if we could see more performance from a GT3 car in this pro class compared to slowing down the Pro-Am class, just straight up GTD. That'd be awesome. I don't have a feel, though, for where we're going to end up, Graham, in terms of how do you balance, how do you do it, what do you do? Do you bring one up 
or do you lower the other? Do you do a little, you know, half measure with one and making that faster and half measure and slowing the other down? I don't know. We do know that there's a global GT3 BOP standard. So one way or the other, something is going to take a hit in terms of being in, there's no compliance. Like there's no GT3 boss or king that wakes up every day with a crown and scepter and, and checks to see that everyone is in compliance. But just be interesting to see how IMSA goes about this. What I don't anticipate is both GTD Pro and GTD will be on identical specs. Just be curious to see how they choose to go about this. Worth mentioning here that there has, of course, been uh, another realm of motorsports where that very same question came up. And uh, for many, disappointing answer was given. That's DTM. Original idea, of course, was these would be some kind of GT3 plus in some regard, and that simply did not emerge. And the reason it didn't emerge is because the manufacturers and, to a lesser extent, the teams basically said that's just going to cost way too much. There's another aspect, by the way, in this same debate, which is the expected explosion in the number of manufacturers going into GT2 uh, was based on the premise that the uh, customer racing organizations could adapt their GT3 machinery to GT2 spec. And principally that meant um, a significant upkick uh, or uptick rather in the power outputs. What that emerged with is it effectively would have meant designing a brand new car because whilst on the face of it, it looks like it's pretty easy to just, if you like, turn up the power wick um, electronically, the problem is that then has a commensurate effect on things like the rest of the powertrain on the braking system etc it is not as simple as just running more power that has a dramatic effect on some of the other consumables brakes tires and it certainly has an effect on the uh, the gearbox in that package as well so uh, do i i think i agree with you mp i think there's going to be a change in the spec, but quite how dramatic it has to be, I think remains to be seen. Let's have a quick look further down Robert, uh, the order. Yeah, Robert Piley Jr. says, asking yeah. for the freaking second time. Uh-huh. Uh, he says, why so little love for the MPC series? Uh, Is that Michel- the Marshall Pruitt Champ Car Series? Yes, I believe so. Uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. It hardly ever gets more than a passing mention uh, while providing great entertainment during an IMSA weekend. So I assume you're talking about why do we speak about it so little, Robert? Reality is... People don't ask questions. Yes. uh, We don't get many questions about it to begin. Also, it's a training series, uh, and we tend to focus, for the most part, on the pro series. We, in our last episode, spoke about the Michelin Le Mans uh, Cup Series because there was a crazy regulation that came up about it, so it warranted discussion. Otherwise, unless asked, you and I don't really get into it because it's just not really part of what we do in terms of our regular coverage or something that we dive into. So get this question sometimes in IndyCar, for example, and I know NASCAR reporters get some questions like this about, hey, why don't you talk about ARCA 
which is you know four steps removed from the top series or whatever it is, or an IndyCar, why don't you talk about USF 2000 more? They're awesome. They're amazing, just like MPC. Truth be told, if we're talking about human interest stories, something that's really unique about a driver or a team, we'll do them because they're interesting. But most listeners, most readers, viewers, whatever, aren't clamoring for the second, third, fourth tier content uh, in terms of racing series below the major one that gets the most attention. And since we do not have an overabundance of budget and reporters, I'm just talking in a general sense, not necessarily Graham and I or or, uh, who we uh, provide services for, but just a case, Robert, frankly, where these are beloved kind of private label series. You know, these are the uh, the best-kept secret type series that folks like yourself happen to love. But there's really not much call or request for them to be elevated to uh, frontline, top-tier reporting and content generation. It's been that way for a long, long time, uh, whether it was the Coney Challenge, Continental Tire Series, name all the various iterations before. Great stuff, amazing racing, etc., etc., etc. But I can tell you one thing: if I were to spend an hour crafting some sort of story, or just normal thing about the MPC, compared to spending an hour crafting one about WeatherTech Championship, there would be a drastic difference in the amount of readers of uh, the MPC versus the IMSA category or the IMSA story, and therefore that's why clients don't ask for the second, third, fourth tier stuff very often because they know it's not bad content. It's just not going to get read. And that's really no different than a store owner deciding to stock their shelves with some really obscure food, for example, that or drink that very few people would have a tendency to buy versus putting the things up front that almost everybody wants as a business you're going to go with a thing that's going to keep your business afloat. So uh, just some of the practical reasons behind why a series like MPC isn't getting tons of time invested in it from folks like myself or Graham Goodwin. And we have silence, and I'm not going to cut it out. Did you hit the mute button? I did. Oh, no, Sorry. not a problem. No, not a problem. Uh- uh, Andres, I'm going to go for Andres Lantos says, my apologies. After Maz, he didn't say that, I did. After Master decided to leave DPI, Andres says he contacted them to ask if it could be an opportunity to go on with their TCR car. They said no. Why? The car's ready, was unveiled, looked good. Or is it just a heavy burden to organize the technical support that Mazda doesn't want to carry it? Very easy answer, Andres. It is not ready. It's the opposite of ready. It's almost the farthest point of being ready. So that's the reason why. There's one of them, and it has been fired up beyond just the normal firing up in the shop after uh, the build was completed uh, to make sure the engine runs, has oil pressure, etc. The car has only been fired once for a purpose beyond just a fluid check, an operational check, and that was to go on to a chassis dyno 
and do the most rudimentary uh, engine mapping. And it did that once and it did not do much of it from what I am told. So the car has never turned a lap in anger on track. There's not been a single lap turn to test develop and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, gremlins. It has many because every new car has many often they get sorted and found uh, on a chassis dyno or you know running in the shop up on stands but uh, we don't know what problems it has what needs to be fixed how it performs how it wouldn't perform like think of a car that was built fired up it ran it then went on to a chassis dyno strapped onto a chassis dyno to take a first peek at the possibility of engine tuning shut off everything came to a stop so you have a car that is the opposite of ready unfortunately and the overarching reason behind the answer of why they told you no is they have decided obviously as you mentioned to leave dpi at the end of the year they are continuing in the with their mx5 cup which is great so that's amazing racing as well but they are in the midst of a void they don't know what it is they're going to do next, where, why, when, what class, who knows. So since this is a bit of a stillborn program with this single TCR car that was built and unveiled and showed at the Los Angeles Auto Show, I believe, Graham, a couple of years ago, that's the only vehicle they really have an in inventory that has gone nowhere and done nothing. And since they've decided to pull from DPI at the end of the year and just reassess in general, I don't think going backwards by trying to make this TCR thing happen, especially now after whether it's Hyundai, Honda, etc., they've just continued to build so much more knowledge and their cars become so much sharper uh, competing since Mazda announced their uh, Mazda 3 TCR. Uh, I would give it an immediate vote down to not do it if i was asked as well so they're not sure what they're going to do or when they're going to do it i am fairly positive something will come to light with a decision on what they would do and where here in north america but yeah uh tcr is just a 100 percent orphan vehicle not ready to race and yeah i would not recommend trying to race it as well because they'd have to spend a fortune to hope to catch up to the uh, the leading models in the class. Let's go with Kevin Kemp, who's asking uh, this again. He says, maybe you have something against guys named Kevin. We, we do. do. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, but how does the announcement of another Kevin, Magnussen, uh, as a driver for Peugeot, affect his drive in IMSA with uh, Chip Ganassi Racing? Hopefully an IndyCar drive. Hashtag me personally. He hopes driving in the, D the WEC doesn't kill his chances to drive for Chip in IndyCar. What's going on with young Kev? Well, we're going to implement a new policy. No more questions from people named Kevin. So, And okay. we're going to blame you directly for that, Kev. Kidding aside, yeah. I've been hoping to catch up with the team to ask this question, uh, that being the Chip Ganassi Racing side, because they have him signed for this year. I have no knowledge as to whether he could or would return next year in light of this Peugeot signing. So failed in getting that answered there. I believe, though, at some point here, early-ish next week, the, 
I don't know exactly when, but meant to catch up with Kevin in a telephone call. Uh, we tried to catch up while he was in Sebring um, late in the week testing and timing just didn't work out. So hoping to ask the question to the man himself. Don't know if he can or will answer uh, it or if he does answer it with any depth. Purely guessing here, but simply based on his reaction to doing his first race in North America as part of a full-season North American program, he really seems like a happy guy. So while returning home to Europe, competing for Peugeot next year, fits all kinds of sensibilities for him, I do have a sneaking suspicion that whether it's IMSA or if anything were to open up for him in IndyCar, that he would be someone saying, I'm going to be booking a lot of flights going back and forth because I do enjoy me some North American motor racing. So I don't think we're going to lose him, Kev. I just don't know if we're going to have him anything like full-time here. We don't know exactly what calendars are going to look like next year, but I expect to see him playing on both sides just looks like Peugeot would be the uh, driver of that with him signing up for a full season, at least. A quick one from Mike and Lover as we're drawing to the end of our IMSA questions. Does LODH have a plan or intention to increase the electric power over time for future industry relevance? I think the answer is no. It's a homologated formula for, I think, it's five years, isn't it, from memory? But I do recall something about those... Um, LMP2 chassis having space for future technology developments, which is a bit odd bearing in mind there's been a further announcement, MP, about a different spec chassis for um, the the, uh, the hydrogen um, prototypes. But do you recall that one or am I just making that up? I have no idea. Uh, But I will say (laughs) this. I don't know if they have a plan, right turn lover, but they should. I've asked similar of IndyCar president Jay Fry, knowing that they're going to hybridization same year as their uh, rivals at IMSA. Also a spec unit. They're meant to be doing a little more than double the horsepower. IMSA said they're doing 40 horsepower for their uh, curse system. IndyCar says somewhere between 80 and 100 upon deployment with theirs. But I have asked upscaling because, to your point, I only expect the marketing value and real-world road value or road alignment being one where uh, for hybrid vehicles, uh, for the internal combustion side of the power output to decrease over time, and the number to swing more heavily towards uh, the electrification power output. IndyCars told me not really, but they did ask in their vendor requests to be given some headroom for that. You know, not that the thing's capable of 200 horsepower, but they're only going to use, say, 100. But give us a little bit extra if we did want to tap into that. I don't think IMSA has so much. And this is an area that is certainly going to be interesting to track and follow. How quickly will this spec hybridization thing remain cool and accepted with manufacturers playing 
in LMDH and IndyCar. And we know NASCAR is very likely headed towards hybridization as well. Uh, something I hope to do a story on here sometime in the near whenever. But uh, I do believe, Graham, that NASCAR, which owns IMSA, is looking to IMSA uh, as our front door rings. Um, they are looking to IMSA as the topic leader. You guys go out, go hybrid, learn a lot, and we may piggyback on exactly what you're doing. And who knows? Is it a 40-horsepower NASCAR electrified bump as well? Is this just a ordering the same thing from the same source, doing the same thing? Who knows? But I do know that NASCAR is looking to IMSA uh, to really lead the knowledge gain in this specific category of hybridization. What I don't know, though, is if and when manufacturers might say, yeah, so this is this was cool to launch in 23. Let's start making some tweaks and changes so that what we're doing in your series remains something we can keep selling to our, you know, board of thumbs up or thumbs down on budget to keep playing. I think that's going to become a thing within two or three years into these formulas, but I can't say. So, yeah, I wish that both series had gone into things really saying, okay, we need to keep open minds here and not bake ourselves into a very specific power target, and it's never capable of being more or significantly more. Is there a scalability here? Uh, no, not that I know of. Not in any major way, right turn lover. So I think that might prove to be a short-sighted decision. Uh, how long have we got, MP? And we'll decide what we're going to do about the final two categories here. Well, we said we'd try and go a little bit longer to two hours. Uh, we've got 20-ish minutes, uh, oh, 19 cr- minutes. Let's crack into, because we've got quite a quite a crop in Hey, General and in fun. Let's just lump um, them into one. Let's do that. Uh, so let's go with uh, George Allegretta, who says, Gentlemen, can there be too much of a good thing if we have six LMDH, LMH manufacturers in WC? Then someone has to be sixth. Uh, might some of the programs be one and done if they're not obvious contenders by 24 hours ceos can get cranky if results don't match the powerpoint presentations it's a good point this and it was part of a fairly spirited debate that was had with a variety of people uh during my sojourn in the kingdom of bahrain uh where are you on this one mp i would say this is just normal racing isn't it george uh, you could have two manufacturers and there's going to be uh one that's gooder and one that's less gooder. I uh, would say this is just the normal function of, of motor racing, isn't it? So I don't see how whatever's coming in LMH, LMDH, whatever, to be any different than at any other point in time in motor racing. Every manufacturer that gets involved does so with the desire, if not somewhat odd expectation of grand success and championships and whatnot. And there's always having spoken about the Nissan LMP one GTR LM LM GTRM LM Nismo program. 
you have every manufacturer coming in with some sort of high-ish level of expectations and at least one, if not more, fail to meet them and fail to meet them spectacularly. And so, I mean, that's just normal every year, right? In every form of racing where there's multiple manufacturers. So just say, I don't see anything different about what's coming here. It's just the norm. And so those that come in with wildly off base and off target expectations, those are the ones that tend to be the one and dones. And I would say, or two and dones or whatever it might be. I'd say, Graham, those are the ones that probably should leave because if you're coming in with something that is so off track for what you expect to happen, if you set yourself with, Oh, it's, championship or victory or bust and you look at who you've hired to do this and who's designed your car and who you're aligned with uh who you've chosen for a tire partner who you've done this i mean if you can't assess reality within your own program and are then seriously pissed uh, by failing to meet expectations that have never been set that high you probably aren't going to be there very long because you aren't living in reality so that thing that's just an old trope a lotus came into indycar in 2012 spent pennies on the dollar compared to chevy and honda were absolutely destroyed as a result and they were absolutely one and done they did not actually spend the money needed or take the program seriously hello rock um and were destroyed and were gone I mean, that to me is kind of darwinism working as intended right yeah i I tend to agree i think the the other thing to say here is if they're not completely off the reservation this is remember a balance of performance um uh, formula and that should help to spread the love at least a little bit i don't disagree i think there's a uh there's a level at which it can operate healthily and you can very easily get above that level. And we could be heading for that kind of level, which is why 23 and maybe 24 might be the peak of that golden era in terms of variety. Um, doesn't mean to say that we're going to get less good competition. You know, I tend to kind of recall people tend to mention amongst the kind of golden eras um, Group C, don't they? Let's take a look back and see what some of those grids look like with Group C cars. Uh, utterly dominated by one make and one car, albeit with lots and lots of customer cars. We are going to get variety. We are going to get competition. And we're going to do so with a more 21st century balance of performance uh, attached to it. Whether you like it or not, that's what's coming. It does have some advantages. Um, What's next? Uh, Caleb uh, Whistler. That's not a name I remember seeing before. Uh, What can IMSA, WEC, ACO do now to capitalize on what many are calling the next golden era of sports car racing mp you want a first crack at this or do you want me to have a crack all yours you old crackish person <laughs> i think one of the things they can certainly do is to take a more measured view on the wider media picture outside of the channels under their own control uh what do i mean by that <sighs> Increasingly, I think what we see with a number of championships is they're pretty greedy about who gets what content when. And they're not necessarily as open as they could 
be to get the bigger hit they would get by engaging with media organizations that have got interest in, indeed investment in their product. So I think that's one thing they can do is to see the media family, and frankly at a time when those media need it, as being a bigger part of the solution to the problem of growing the audience. Yes, things like paywalls on um, apps uh, uh, amongst those things. I think they could also do with taking a couple of steps away from some of the broadcast solutions they've got in place to see whether or not they might want to adapt for what's going to be a very different look in a year or two or three years' time and not be shy about asking the questions of those manufacturers about where they want to spend their marketing pounds, euros and dollars. Um, I think there's a lot of things they can do, but what I'd like to see is an approach that embraces the potential as being partners rather than servants to it. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd like to be part of the solution to that problem rather than being told what my role is. I think, does that make sense? Very much so. Would just say that fandom seems to be on a rise in what we have right now already across IMSAWEC, etc. That's not just referring to people being fans of the racing, but being a fan of what's happening, right? Being an enthusiastic participant in something building towards new heights, greater heights and such. And so that's, it borders on not evangelism, true evangelism, but it just, it means instead of folks just turning on the whatever, streaming whatever, buying a ticket, showing up in person and watching it and liking it and that being done a little bit in isolation, does feel like there is a just a, a growing sense of like, okay, this thing I enjoy seems to be lifting and seems to be becoming bigger and maybe there's more of a community aspect that uh, could be uh, either happening or, or close to kicking off. I think that's a big thing for the yep. all the major championships Caleb's mentioned, but just in a, in a very general sense of, okay, we're still competing against each other. That's not going to change. IMSA wants to beat WAC, ACO wants to beat SRO, and you know whatever. Those are all the norms, but there does seem to be something here, Graham, where I haven't felt it in a little while, but there does seem to be a, all right, sports cars could be a thing again here in a couple of years. Uh, we know that prototypes are going to be the vehicle to, I think, bring more people in, unite more, build this stronger union of folks who love sports car racing hope obviously gt gets back to a place where it can do that with some new things happening there but this does feel like we're in a place where instead of come see our race come love us come be all about us uh maybe there needs to be a shift talking about how do you capitalize on all that maybe there's a valuable shift among the various sanctioning bodies to say hey all about you um how do we make what we do all about you how do we celebrate you more i know AL, the alms had the for the fans tag which is really popular and worked incredibly well 
it's never a bad thing to say, hey, we might be at the precipice of, of a new golden era. And what's going to make that golden? Well, people. <laughs> I mean, the, the cars are obviously the underpinning of it and the quality of the racing as well. But if you have this feeling that there's a growing body that is loving it now and more will be coming in to love it and sports car could become less of a fringe thing in the sport i'd say pivoting among all manufacturing uh sorry among all sanctioning bodies to say okay we're going to do this with with our fans first and foremost i don't have all the answers as to what we're going to do but we're going to shift how we promote how we embrace how we televise how we do everything let's just turn this on its head and say fans how do we make them the core of everything we do instead of being a little bit self-interested which is quite often the case i i completely agree i think there's uh the the i feel like gen 2 social media um the uh, we've gone through a period where the traditional web forums were a thing even actually where traditional social media were a thing and now they're kind of more niche interest stuff but big big numbers and in particular that's shown itself with fans unable to actually attend but still proving their passion i'd love to see some really constructive ways of actually embracing that audience rewarding that audience for their loyalty after what's been a hell of a time really um let's trot through a couple more uh dustin marlowe says how do team owners across the global sports car paddock uh, view the Australian V8 Supercar Championship. It's hard to understand how de facto factory V8 drivers like Shane Van Gisbergen haven't been called up into factory roles in other forms of sports cars. Well, Shane has. He's done some stuff with, amongst others, McLaren. He's done a bit of Mercedes-AMG stuff as well. The big problem tends to be, it's a bit like the NASCAR guys, isn't it? Which is, um, it's such an all-consuming calendar, and the logistics, particularly at the moment, are such that it makes it almost impossible to do a full season everywhere else as well. Um, it's certainly a, a long conversation I had with Craig Lowndes when he came over and did the Spa 24 Hours. That was the problem. You can't really do supercars and something else, and you've got to focus on that one big thing, which is your one big payday, or make um, a pretty blunt choice, as a number of, of drivers have done in the past MP. Indeed, and also Shane just read this morning injured in a bicycling yep. accident, so he's going to miss uh, next GT round uh, down under. But yeah, Shane's, I mean, granted, Shane got the call up here for many years to come over and do the Rolex 24 uh, with the WeatherTech uh, gang. Um, Lounsey, you know, should be over here every year. Wind Cup should be over here every year. Many should be over every year. We know that uh, obviously the awesome uh, champion that is Scott McLaughlin, McLaughlin, no D at the end, but uh, he is over here. <laughs> He's now an IndyCar driver, and while we haven't had him in any sports car stuff yet, I would have to anticipate he will be uh, sports carring himself uh, without a doubt uh, in the U.S. And uh, I don't think his days competing in one-offs at Bathurst and whatnot are uh, over by any means. So. I don't I think the the answer to the question is I think most teams running in endurance racing have vast respect for the teams and drivers in Austrian supercars but a lot of it's remote 
because there's not a lot of crossover between those two paddocks in terms of personnel jumping back and forth, uh, except for in very odd instances. So just makes a little bit harder to say, oh, well, and we must have this person because if you don't see them in front of you and you don't, most folks want some sort of uh, personal information gathering in person uh, than just strictly remote before they would hire someone. Uh, here's one I'm going to take as we start to ramp down a little bit. This comes from my pal, Ryan Terpstra. It says, how does Graham not know about the Prue Day? Uh, in honor of the Prue Day, I would like to inform Graham that one of our British members has explained the difference between biscuits and cookies, and I now understand why the Revolutionary War had to happen. Um, so, yes. So, if you were unaware, Mr. Goodwin, there is a... I know that we have the, what do they call it, the uh, RSL Listener Collective or whatever on Facebook um, that listen to Midweek Motorsport or or whatever. I I forget the exact intent there. But they have their their Listener Collective who are very active on Facebook, talking about the shows, interacting with one another, and just mirth and merriment all takes place. Criticisms as well. Uh, we have the equivalent on Twitter, but private Twitter, right? Something more on the uh, DM range, Ooh. right? Um, a, a group that has assembled on their own. They call themselves the Prue Day, that taking the right. first four letters of my last name p-r-u-e and then the word day and our listener collective right their name the name prue day is modeled off of my favorite this is just getting so far down the rabbit hole of obscurity but that's why i love it uh the name of my favorite wwe tag team (laughs) which happens to be named the new day so right. my favorite tag team uh, from the moment I saw them many years ago, the New Day, they're big, loud, boisterous, hilarious. They're big hams, but they're also excellent. I think they're seven-time WWE tag team champions. They've been broken up a little bit recently. That's uh, a bit of a turn there where uh, uh, the biggest member of the New Day, Big E, has been going on a bit of a solo run, uh, going after solo wwe belts instead of the tag team belts nonetheless um prue day named modeled after my favorite tag team the new day it is a collective of listeners to our show primarily as i've come to understand uh listeners of my week in indycar thing but they also as noted by ryan's question here daniel summerskill a very active member of Prue Day. Never, never heard of him. Never heard of him. John Wojnar, yeah. we could run down the list. Uh, James Bethay, you name it. number of them have come together. I think the number's up to like 35 or 38 or something so far. But it's just a group of our listeners on their own decided to get together. And they communicate frequently, I am told. I am not a part of the Prue Day group. I'm not on the Twitter private DM. Probably Uh, best we're not. Yes, I was asked 
by one of the members. If I wanted to join, I said, no, you, first of all, you scare me. All of you scare me, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, and uh, again, I don't know what it is they talk about, but I, I get little kernels when questions come back to me or little notes about, you know, oh, we were talking about this or that. And it just sounds like a lot of silly fun. They were beyond kind and sweet over the holidays to send a care package my way, which had some beers in it. Someone, I don't know who, knitted a scarf for my wife. Wow. Yes, to which I I went to hand it to her, and she said, no, (laughs) that's yours. So I have this nice purplish-pinkish scarf uh, that someone knitted for me. They sent some cat toys, mostly catnip, which are cats. I stepped on a little fish catnip thing that they sent uh, that Rosie loves to death. But they are, I give them a hard time, and it's out of love. But it's this really, honestly, Graham, it's this really awesome and sweet, mostly hilarious group of our listeners who have just come together. Uh, in and around the show uh, that I guess maybe is the one common link that uh, has brought them together and hopefully the group will expand but they operate not in a public Facebook forum for all to see and all to join it's more of a hey if you have a similar character flaw demonstrated by listening to that nonsense Marshall Pruitt puts together each week uh, in podcast form with Graham and with the other guests, um, you're, you're welcome to join. So, so are these the same guys? That, I mean, I'm looking out the garden now. There's four guys standing in the garden with burning torches. Are these the same guys? Could, they it, could are, it be them? Yes, 100%. So clearly there are the reasons for fear fully justified so yes so i thought you knew about the prude but you didn't terpstra by the way one of the main agitators they've actually started a prude related iRacing league so i mean this thing's just fallen off the rails instantly and i love it so um yeah so that's that uh let's see where do we go next uh damien peachman again uh, no 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 uh jacob bame obscure question of the week uh, what is the last case of a driver smoking cigarettes in the car during a sports car race you can recall? Uh, oh, I can't ever remember. I don't know. Um, let's see. Let's go to fun and close here with some fun stuff. And Jacob Bame is at it again. Uh, let's see. What is the weirdest announcement you've heard announced in the press room at the track? Um, it was Road Atlanta, which we had to abandon the ground floor because someone had blocked the toilet and flooded the entire press room. I and like how you use the word air quote. Someone. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, they said ab- they said abandoned ship, I think. It, it could have been something uh, yeah, else. Yeah, that but, might not have been a P at the end of that word. No. Um, um, so there's that one. The other one was, it wasn't really a weird announcement in the press room. I'll, I'll let you answer in a moment. It was... A trackside announcer at Sebring, it's within about 2003-04, who, there's no easy way to say this, utterly massacred every single European name that was announced. Um, I'm trying to remember, uh, Simon Pagano, I mean, it would never be the same again. But um, 
uh, who was it? Uh, it was oh, the, 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 this was the one where the infamous um, mispronunciation of Roman Dumas name came from that day. Uh, so it was indeed Roman Dumas. Roman Dumas, uh, yes. Yeah, Roman Dumas. Um, now, what was the? There was a guy. I'll come back. Uh, uh, that's right. It was. Um, there was a um, classic car parade at the start of proceedings. One of which was a Porsche 917, uh, which was, excuse me, pedalled by Gerard Larousse, and he was announced as Greg LaRussi, as I remember oh. it. It was like that all the way through. Um, painful, but hilarious. Go on, what have you got? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of those. When Jacques Villeneuve won the 1995 Indy 500, the local broadcaster just could not make sense of the attack of uh, vowels and, and other things in his name. And I think we got uh, Jacques Villanueva, uh, which was great there, but uh, usually Jacob, my favorite announcements, and they qualify as weird for hashtag me personally, is at Daytona during. I don't know if it happens so much during the roar each year, but definitely during the Rolex Twenty Four, and that is someone. It's a large room. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, it seats, what would you say, Graham, a hundred at least? Um, Easily a hundred. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a large squarish room, but it's a sizable one. We always sit at the far end, uh, as far away as you can go, basically. Yep. Someone will open the door from the, I don't know what you would call them, food staff? Something? They, they at Daytona do their best to be kind and offer journalists uh, meals. Dinner usually is what's announced, but sometimes you'll get a lunch type thing. And inevitably someone who's just put out all of the gruel will open the door and announce that whatever it is, something loosely based on animals that were formerly alive with, some form of flavored gravy and slop um, is available, and you've seen it, Graham. I, I hope you've eaten either very little of it or none of it. But I mean, <laughs> there are inmates on death row whose final <laughs> meal is five star compared to this. Usually, what's put out. And what's funny, and I don't know if it's funny, but it's a peculiarity to me. I know if you look at my body, you go, well, yeah, clearly, you love food. You're a fat ass. I get that. Um, I spent a lot of time in my life eating a lot of things. As I've gotten older, I've tried to be a little bit wiser and not put total crap into my body. I just look at that food. And again, I appreciate Daytona making the effort to do it. But it's usually stuff where you go... Man, this is gas station sushi. This is stuff that's been under the heat lap lamp at the gas station for about four days. So, yeah. Anyways, that's what comes to mind. There. Are we done? We're we're a little over two hours here, but uh, uh, Lance Snyder. Lance Snyder. I'm going to throw this at you because go on, go, go. yeah, Lance Snyder, second time submission. Says I'm a bit miffed here. 
because I pay a lot for this free podcast. It's a great point, Absolutely. Lance. We apologize. It says Graham referred to the smaller hypercar manufacturers as minnows. If one of those said manufacturers, uh, hypercar efforts does not materialize. Wouldn't that make it Ryan quote fish killer Kish's fault? Ooh, there uh, we go. Should obviously yes. I mean, I mean, known say pet tormentor. Uh, I, I have a feeling that this business about him having no pets, that might be bluff. Uh, there might actually be some, I think, you know that Busted magazine you bring into Daytona? Yes. I think we're going to see a big guy with ginger hair in there, um, and I think it's going to be some kind of animal massacre. There's, there's something, I, I, I suspect if you move the carpet in Ryan Kishy's bedroom, there would be some grim stuff underneath those floorboards. Oh, Jesus. We're, uh, I think we're done. Uh, I don't know how many of the 74 questions we had. Uh, 4,352 words uh, worth of questions in this episode. Gone a little bit longer than usual. We try and do it 90. We're a little bit over two hours this time. Greatly appreciate everyone's efforts to send in questiones. And we do ask you, if you really want them answered, and we didn't get to it, send them back in. That's different than saying, if we didn't get to your question, send it back in. It's if you really want it answered, and I'm asking you to be critical here about what you sent in, because I know at least on my IndyCar show, I have not been stressing that enough. And so as a result, this last episode, Graham, was almost half resubmissions. And I tried to be polite in saying, I'm not going to get to a lot of them because a lot of them weren't used the first time because... Uh, it really doesn't benefit the overall listener body because they're so specifically strange that no one's really <laughs> going to care about it. No, I'm just is, being honest. Is that the, is that so, the question or the question is? Yeah, no. <laughs> so just saying, if we didn't get to it and you really want it answered and you think that more than just you would benefit from getting the answer, please send it in. If we didn't I, get to I your do- question, it doesn't mean automatic resubmission yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna add one quick other proviso here which is please think about the length of the question think about it in these terms if you're standing uh you know if you're actually trying to get directions at the side of a road how many different lines of direction does it take before you completely lose track of it uh think think concisely because it helps us to keep the show together and answer as many questions as we can, and it will absolutely increase your chances of getting those questions uh, answered in any given week in sports cars. That, though, wraps it up for this week's edition of the Week in Sports Cars. Next week's edition, we'll have a list of 62 cars to, to talk about MP, because we'll have the official entry for the Le Mans 24 Hours uh, to talk through. And uh, we're also going back racing with whatever SRO have called their championship in North America is uh, kicking off this weekend. Um, it's something, 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 GT World Challenge America, something, something. Um, for now, though, from me, Graham Goodwin, from him, Marshall Pruitt, and with thanks, of course, to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com, uh, we've been the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt podcast, and we will be back next week. <laughs>